0: Hi it's Marco here just before we get started with this episode I wanted to let you know that this episode is available on our YouTube channel as a video podcast as well so you can see not only myself and Tarek but this week's brilliant guest so head on over there we've put a link in the podcast description and you can watch this episode as well as listen to it so why not do that and uh, give us a follow while you're there that would be great but now we'll get straight into the episode.
1: Welcome to episode 136 of Page One, the Writers Podcast. I'm Tarek.
0: And I'm Marco, and thanks for joining us on the podcast where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing journeys, find out how they got into the industry, and try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. This is one of a special series of episodes where we're following a book's journey from being written to being published to possibly even being made into a film. And we've spoken to some brilliant agents, editors, and even Hollywood managers for this series of episodes. Uh, and today we're speaking with our first editor in the series, a yeah. commissioning editor, Miranda Jewish.
1: Yeah, this is quite exciting. So we're moving away from the agents now. We're looking into what happens after your book's been picked up by an agent. How does it get picked up by a publisher? What's mm-hmm. the process there? What do they look for when they're looking at these manuscripts When you're talking about going to auctions? What kind of stuff do you consider advances? All the kind of financial stuff that authors really want to know about. And Miranda's a really great example. She's a fantastic editor at Viper Books. She's worked with a couple of our past guests we've had on the podcast before. Janice Hallett with The Appeal and Katrina Ward with Last House and Needless Street. So some really big names in the crime and horror genre.
0: Yeah, and it's just really interesting hearing, you know, when, when you're sitting there writing your book, knowing how to attract an editor can be something quite distant yeah. from you you're, you're more concerned to how will I get an agent but it, it is interesting hearing about the interaction between the agents and editors and what commissioning editors are looking for you know what trends are important uh, what sort of stories they, they are interested in so hopefully this episode is of interest as it was to me uh, and we'll get straight into the interview with Miranda now
1: so on with the podcast
0: the blank page to some it's terrifying an obstacle to overcome
1: Every
0: story starts with page one. Now, I, I, when we have authors in the podcast, I always start with the same question, which is, did you always want to be a writer? But did you always want to be a commissioning editor? No. <laughs> be a very specific ambition <laughs> if you did.
2: No, I didn't even really want to be in publishing. Um, it was kind of an accident, really. Um, I, think, I think I wanted to be a pathologist, <laughs> Nice, (laughs) Um, But um, I never really got my act together to do a medical conversion course. And I just sort of ended up in a back in the day when there were graduate traineeships for publishing, which is aging me somewhat. I think I was the last generation before the recession. Um, So I just got on that. And to be honest, I just I never I never got out of it, Um, which is fine. I I really enjoy my job. But no, it's not something I ever thought I would do. Um, I think I thought I'd be playing with dead bodies or. Digging up very ancient dead bodies. Nice. It's yeah, I wanted to
1: be a CSI agent based on watching CSI, and then
0: you find out it's nothing like that at all in real life, and it's actually quite
2: boring. No, no, it's. I mean, I did. I did I,
0: did. I mean, you're showing how young you are now, as well, which is depressing. <laughs> but, yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, but what what was it that made you want to? Uh, what, what, what drew you away from anthropology then into like, um,
2: writing world well I mean apart apart from accidentally ending up in publishing I mean I, I started in military history publishing which I loved um and I kind of ended up in fiction I suppose by accident um I ended up in crime and thrillers because that's that's the that's the area of, of fiction I've always read for pleasure um i think I think I've mentioned on another podcast that I didn't see my dad very much because he worked very late but When I did see him, it was normally he would come uh, when I was having my bath and he would sit and he would read Sherlock Holmes stories to me in the bath. Um, And he started with the Speckled Band when I was four, which made me terrified of bell pulls and like snakes coming down, (laughs) uh, which that snake cannot do. That snake cannot come down vertically. It's it's an anatomical impossibility, but I didn't know that at the time. Um, (laughs) So I suppose crime has just been, it's, I think it's very difficult in publishing to publish books in a genre you don't like or that you're not automatically drawn to. And I've done lots of different genres and I've enjoyed a lot of them and they've kind of opened up new areas to me. But I know that if I can only take one book with me on a holiday, it's, it's going to be a book with a dead body in it.
0: And, and you did this graduate traineeship um, that you said, I mean, what did that actually involve on a day-to-day basis?
2: I mean, I suppose a lot of grunt work really but also I was started a very small um publishing house in Gloucestershire and they really kind of throw you in at the deep end so on sort of the third day they were having me input corrections directly into the final layouts of a book um and at this point I did not know the difference between a hyphen and an emerald and an emerald. had no idea so I did a find replace and every single hyphen in the book turned into an N-rule. <laughs> and then I had to spend days going back through it and correcting every single hyphen and N-rule in this book about the logistics on the Western Front. Um, so that's that definitely haunts my nightmares. But, it, I mean, it was, it was just a lot of author care. It was a lot of admin. But it was a lot of reading. We didn't have money to pay for proofreaders, so I proofread huge volumes of books on tanks. Um, and by the end, I was commissioning books of my own again a lot of books about tanks um and the ak-47 which is my favorite <laughs> automatic firearm
1: <laughs> and and how did you then work your way to viper which is where you're at just now
2: yes um well after i um i moved to london because in publishing if you want to uh, you basically have to be in london at least in those days now it's a lot more a lot more spread out which is great but in those days essentially if you wanted to be in mainstream commercial publishing it was london and I went to work for Titan, um, which is known for its comics at the time. It was quite a small fiction department, um, but it grew. And I was doing uh, science fiction and fantasy and a lot of very big movie tie-in books. Um, that's a large part of their list. And um, film tie-in books. So if you want to read a film tie-in book for Grimm or um, oh God, anything really, Blacklist, Star Wars then they will be publishing it Um, and they also did some crime and they did more crime after I arrived because I enjoyed it so much I did a lot of uh, new Sherlock Holmes novels and a lot of general commercial crime for supermarkets Um, but then I went on maternity leave with my daughter and while I was on leave this senior commissioning editor job at Serpent's Tale came up Serpent's Tale is the literary fiction imprint of Profile Books which is a large independent publisher and yeah I they wanted someone to do crime and thrillers and the Serpent's Tale list and I went and and got the job and then quite soon after I arrived I told them this wasn't going to work and they had to do a new imprint (laughs) Um, because the Serpent's Tale list is is very um sort of rightly lauded as being a real home for literary fiction new sort of transgressive fiction very sort of (laughs) avant-garde memoir um, but they wanted me to to buy commercial crime and the, the readership is just too different if you're talking on twitter to a group of people who want um yeah, the Essex serpent they're not the same market as the person who's going to buy the new commercial thriller it doesn't yeah. it doesn't it doesn't work um and I was lucky they they went okay <laughs> um
1: I was gonna say because obviously Viper is it's very new it's like November 2019 launched. launch so yes. I mean what was that like Heading that up and, and and getting the chance to kind of launch your own imprint from the from the scratch from the start, even.
2: I mean, I think I don't think I'll get to do that again. <laughs> I think that was <laughs> that was my one new imprint probably in my career, um, which I'm fine with. To be honest, it's quite stressful. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it was it was November 19. It was it was lovely. You know, we had a nice party. It was all very exciting, and also because, in a sense, there wasn't a huge amount of pressure because the sort of ethos of profile is that you know we will support you to build it and if it doesn't make a lot of money uh, or even if it makes a lot probably they would have been like well it needs time these things need time to grow um but then of course we published our first book just as everybody went into lockdown um and that that was a bit worrying but actually it it seemed to have turned out rather well
0: yeah yeah we'll, we'll, yeah we'll get on to how well it's turned out uh, later on but I mean uh, in your role then as a as a sort of day-to-day job what what are you doing now in your day job
2: well in my day job in normal times or my mm. day job right now coming back from maternity leave right, is in, no, in normal normal times, normal, yeah, times. Yeah, yeah. um well my principal role is to acquire new books and to edit the ones I have um so acquiring is being sent manuscripts. 99% of the time from agents, which obviously serves as a kind of a funneling process for the, the manuscripts with the most potential. Um, so they, they, you know, we, we can get a get 50, 50, 100 a hundred a week sometimes in the busy periods, especially around book fairs. And sometimes it's quite quiet um, and I can't possibly read any of those. Um, so having an agent who p- pitches your books well, and also sends them to the right people. There are agents who will send you you 10 books a a month Mm -hmm. of all different areas of the genre or even not in anywhere near your genre because they haven't bothered to really learn what editors like what and then there are some agents where you get one thing from a year so you know this is worth reading so that kind of hierarchy of what to read um is kind of based on who the agent is Um, it's based on the pitch which again feeds into how good the agent is um, I mean, often I won't read things because the picture is almost identical to something I already have. And it's nothing against the book. It's just I have quite an intentionally limited list so that everybody gets their own space, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've read many manuscripts that I thought were excellent. And I've said no, clearly because. And then I go on and see them published elsewhere. And I'm very pleased but I just know that I couldn't I couldn't give them the space they needed. So that's quite a large part of my job. Um I think that's probably certainly the part people think I do most of. Um, but then actually probably more is is line editing manuscripts. Um, and I think every publisher has a different way of of doing that. Um, for me, it's buying a book, reading it, sending an author away with pages of notes to rewrite it on their own, and then they'll send it back, and I'll read it again. Um, it may be that then I go straight into line editing or they may have to have it again to do rewrites. um, And then sort of we work on it together and only when we're both very happy with it, will it pass the managing editor who will do a range, copy editing and range, you know, proof, proofreading and things like that. But um, the actual process of my part of the editing editing can often take between back and forth several months. It really depends what stage the book is at. And then when
1: you've, so when you've received a book from an agent, um, what do you what was it you look for you know and and because you've got obviously you say you go on to do line edits so what kind of how well how much level of polish do you expect there to be how much work do you look for and how do you know what needs to fix and how to fix it
2: I don't always sometimes you read a book and you like the voice and you like what's going on but there's just big flaws in the in the plots or the logic of how the story fits together and sometimes you think oh I can see exactly what that needs, and my experience nine times out of ten, if I say that, they then go somewhere else, with like HarperCollins with my ideas, <laughs> which has happened three times. Um, so I have to be careful now. Um, but sometimes you just—I—I I, this is not something I know how to fix. Um, so and it's not worth you know the, the the money I can make is probably not worth the time I would spend to turn this into a book, which is just about okay. Um, but I, essentially, I, I suppose I look for. A degree of polish. It's always worrying if a book comes riven with typos because that also that means, A, the author does a lot of typos, but also the agent mm-hmm. doesn't care enough to run that through their processes to fix it. And the first book is almost always the most polished book you're going to get from an author because that's the one the agent's gone out with and worked with them on and made sure is the best it can be. It's book two where the author attends to on their own. The agent has got their cut already. And it's moved on to their other there are other authors for doing a new deal and they are less likely to read book two and it's not going to go through that that polishing process before it gets to me. Um, so there has to be a certain amount of time cost benefit analysis with all these things
0: yeah and and how important obviously it's very important I was going to ask about the market obviously the the market is is key to deciding presumably what you're going to take on. Um what you're not going to take on, hmm. but given the the length of time that it can take from um you receiving a book to actually coming out in the shops and stuff, how do you judge the market? How do you know where the market's going to be at that point?
2: I mean, obviously you don't. <laughs> uh, for Viper, my my kind of ethos is to do what I haven't been able to do in previous jobs, which is to just buy books that I like. Obviously, if a book I like, but I think I have no way to sell this, Mm -hmm. then I don't buy it. But if I think it has potential and I like it, then that's that's kind of what I go. And it's quite rare that I feel that way. I mean, I read a lot of manuscripts and a lot of them are perfectly good, but they're perfectly good in a in a way that I can't make them stand out from the crowd as an independent publisher. You know, I can't I can't take an average book and through the power of a six figure marketing spend, make people buy it. And there are plenty of books that come out there every year and people kind of go, God, it's everywhere. Have you read it? It's a bit crap. <laughs> um, I mean, publishers will stand in corners in, uh, you know, in meetings going, did you read that? Oh, my God, it's terrible. <laughs> because there is a huge power in the marketing spend. Of course yeah. there is. It's a product. Um, so my books hopefully have a quality that means they can stand out for the crowd without always spending that kind of money. I don't think I've ever spent six figures on (laughs) marketing.
1: And um, do you accept unsolicited submissions? You know, or does it it have to come through an agent for you guys? Or do you take uh, authors out there who are just looking to send something in?
2: Um, If we took unsolicited, we'd we'd take, it it would just be vast. Um, If I know the author personally and I've worked with them before, then I would, I would, I would take it and I would read it. Um, though obviously it's always more difficult if you're talking to someone one to one and say, "I don't want your book." Um, so I, I have taken them if they're from authors I've already worked with because at least then I can I know the quality and I have a base level. But somebody I've, I've never met and I have no connection with, um, no, um, it just it would set a, a bad precedent. And also, an agent I think is very important because not only does it give a professional layer for things like royalties and advances and it means they get you know it's it's, it, it's more to protect the author than it is to me but also sometimes you have to have very difficult conversations with authors and it is better to be able to talk to an agent about how to couch those things or sometimes in some context is just to do it through an agent you know if you're deciding that you're not going to publish any more of their books or that the book they've written isn't good enough you know the agent i think is a very valuable tool in that
0: and and in your role, are you you know in in the if you look at the whole process of publishing, you know, authors are trying to attract agents, and agents are presumably trying to attract the right editors to then take the books. But are are you at the top of the tree then in that, or or do who are you having to persuade in your role?
2: Well, I have to persuade the authors to want to work with me, which <laughs> <laughs> doesn't always work. Um, but I think it depends. There's a dynamic with some agents are just superstars. Mm. You know, they 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 will send a manuscript and you know they're not going to accept less than a certain amount of money. If you haven't got that kind of money in the budget, then you might yeah. as well not read the book because you'll just get sad. Um, so they definitely have a power um, and sort of a pull that means they will send something out and every editor who gets it will just drop everything and read it. Yeah. Um, but also, I mean, you are especially once you've got authors who are doing very well. We all know authors who the more books they write, the longer the books get and the less edited they seem.
0: (laughs) Who could you be referring to? (laughs) Yeah. And
2: there are, there are some authors who are well-known. They just will not be edited.
0: Uh They just, just won't,
2: won't do it. And you can either accept that they will have ropey plots or you can say, you don't want to work with them. But I, I, am always mistrustful of an author who doesn't want to be edited i agree no one wants to be sort of hacked and sliced um but publish it yourself if you don't really want anyone to touch
0: it <laughs> <laughs> i mean how, how do those conversations go do you, do you tend to find most authors are receptive to um notes and things like that or um you know do you get into difficult conversations sometimes about what needs to be done if, if they want to publish it
2: certainly had difficult conversations um with authors uh certainly on my list now um the kind of person the author is is a significant part of my thought process when i whether i when i decide whether or not to offer for a book Mm -hmm. um because it's a it's a small stable of authors um they've ended up kind of creating a weird cabal against me on twitter (laughs) as far as i can tell um and because of that, in a sense, they kind of are representing us more than maybe if you belong, if you were being published by a very large publishing house. Um, So I need to know that it's somebody who I can sort of jog along with reasonably well. They don't have to be my best friends, but I need to know that I can tell them the truth and that Mm -hmm. they will do what needs to be done. Because if they don't, if they don't trust me, then it's, it's it's just not going to work really. Um, But yes, I mean, sometimes you do have to have very difficult conversations. I find the best way to to have those is to be prepared is to show that you've written 30 pages of notes and this is the logic for everything um and you're not just going oh well i skimmed it on my phone and i think quite honestly that character's rubbish and you should get rid of them oh i oh it's, it's gutted your whole book <laughs> yeah no, no one enjoys that and
1: you also will work on the blurb of a book and mm-hmm. the cover of the book etc and i wondered what goes into the cover you know how do you decide what image suits a book and who? how many people need to weigh in on that decision
2: oh god so many <laughs> um i mean a cover is done by the editor will write a cover brief which will contain uh sort of the uh, quite a detailed synopsis normally you will have all the copy you're going to put on the cover including taglines you want to put in like you know holding quotes like, this is an amazing book by an amazing author. So the designer knows to leave space for all that text and what's going to go where. Um, and you will also tell them who the target market is, who the primary retailers are going to be. Is this more a supermarket book? Is this more a Waterston's front table book? Uh, you know, This for women aged 30 to 65, which is the best period, to, you know, which is the, the biggest reading slot. You want those women aged 30 to 65 because they're the ones going to Waterstones because they're having to buy the birthday present for their child's friend from school, or they're the ones doing the supermarket shop, sadly, it's mostly them. Um, So yeah, you want, you want that particular market. Um, And then you will provide comp titles. So you will go on Amazon and you will find a book that's similar to the book you have. And then you will go, people also bought and you will end up in an Amazon spiral of doom. (laughs) Finding competing titles so that the designer can get a flavour. You know, what kind of fonts is this? A serif or a sans-serif kind of book? Is it bold colours? Is it muted? Is it you uh, know a drawn cover or is it photoreal or is it just text um, or whatever? So you give them as much information as, as they can. Some designers don't mind if you steer them quite actively. Some of them are like, leave me, leave me with the words, and I shall pre- I shall present you with something, um, and they will eventually come back with normally a few different, very different directions for a kind of book.
0: Um, Do do they get to read the book or is it just the information you're giving them?
2: It depends. I mean, there's always the option, if if the book manuscript is available and they want to read it, we will always make it available to them. Uh, Sometimes, and the problem is with covers, you're you're often working, um, I mean, we're currently working on March, 2023 right now. Um, We've briefed in the cover, uh for capturing awards next book which is um, a march 23 title and we only had got the manuscript in a-, a week ago so i've only i've i finished yes. reading it approximately four hours ago <laughs> um so we couldn't give them anything we had a detailed outline um which we gave to the gave to the designer um but we were kind of just going on vibes and hand waving really um but then once we have lots of directions that will go to a covers meeting and everybody will have opinions so Head of marketing, head of sales, head of export because export and UK sales obviously have very different tastes for a lot of the time, um, and uh, head of publicity, uh, head of ed- you know head of editorial, um, and we'll all have strong opinions. And invariably, uh, sales will just shake their head and go, "Does it look like a crime book?" And marketing will go bigger type, and publicity will go. Can we have a bigger shout? Phone an editorial will go. Well, actually, that that's the wrong kind of dog. The dog in the book is a Labrador, and that's a retriever. It doesn't matter. No one will care. I'm just saying. And you just go (laughs) round and round in circles until you eventually. um... I mean, personally, I am generally happy to bow to marketing and sales because, quite frankly, it doesn't matter how beautiful the cover is. If sales say, "I can't," this book doesn't it doesn't doesn't match the insides, and I can't sell it.
0: Does the does the author have any input into that at all? He,
2: they should. Um, I, our process is that when we have a cover that in-house we are happy with, we will send it to the author. Um, and normally, if we've done our job, the author will go, that's great. That is the essence of my book. Thank you. Um, a couple of times I've had authors come back and go, I really hate it. I'm sorry. I don't like it. And both times that's happened to me. They were absolutely right. And I didn't like it either. And it gave me an excuse to go back to, back to the meeting and go, it's all wrong. It's all wrong. <laughs> the author hates it. They don't um, have right of refusal for our contracts. Some publishing houses do. The authors are able to veto a cover. Um, ours don't because with the best will in the world, an author is good at writing books. They do not know yeah. what will get into Tesco um and in a year's time when they get their royalty statement they'll want it to go into tesco um but i would always listen to, and often the authors have good points they'll go oh well i like it but actually i don't talk about that color and we'll take it back and, the, and often often just means the designer will do three versions with different colors and the author will go oh no you were right that first color was great or we'll go oh the author's right that color is better yeah. um so it should be a it should be a a, a decision for everybody but I would say in the end if sales think they can't flog it then that's bad Then you should do with yeah. you should do with the head of sales says.
1: <laughs> Well then I mean I mean that kind of comes onto to marketing because that's a massive part of the book and I'd imagine leading up to the launch of a book is the biggest kind of push but ideally throughout the book's life there's going to be some element of marketing and how do you decide what the strategy is for a book how do you decide where to allocate the funds whether it's a kind of billboard for some books or it's a push in a magazine somewhere else so how does that work
2: well i can't i can't um speak to the the marvels that the marketing department do with any great um knowledge i can just watch what they do and um be pleased um but obviously different books have different readerships so say our our what oh, a book in front of me what is it it's the appeal there we go the appeal um Oh yeah, because I was reading her third book and I was trying to remind myself what hellish formatting I did in this book. Um, But this book, um, because it had a, not a cozy, it's been called cozy. It's not particularly cozy. It's more, I think of it as bloodless brain box crime, but it has that puzzle aspect. So a lot of the marketing went towards uh, the Sunday Times, Times readership, people who like crosswords. Um, That generation went on Facebook advertising because, you know, that's where they live. Um, so it's kind of knowing, it's more about who the readership is yep. um, to, where, to where you funnel your marketing. Um, I suppose it really depends. I mean, there are some books where we do a lot more on, say, Instagram. Uh, that may be because the book itself is very Instagrammable. It may be because the readership is younger or it may be because the author has a very strong Instagram presence. So they will always look at the author and where they are and on what platforms and what they can do to kind of judge where their budget is best spent
0: is there is there an onus though on authors these days to market the books perhaps more than they could have done previously because of the existence of social media and and how big it is and stuff like that
2: i think so i think it's seen as free i mean it's not free because an author's time is not free Mm -hmm. no one's time is free um but there's definitely more i mean i like all my authors to be on twitter um just because it it gives people a place to find you and it yeah. um, introduces them to the uh, the crime community, which is, I think, one of the most sort of fun, but also just the most active parts of book Twitter. You know, the crime crime readers are brilliant. The crime bloggers are really really active, and the and the authors tend to be quite active as well. Um, so just the more people you know in the community, the more likely you are to go to conventions, the more likely you are to people to see you, to buy your books, to buy book three, because they saw you reading at a panel and then they go and buy the backlist. I don't know really how much concrete income that will generate, because essentially if you get a, a spread in the Times Saturday magazine, that is going to do far more than yeah. years of doing conventions. Yeah. Um But... I think it gives them, I understand that writing is a lonely occupation and it's nice to make friends. (laughs) And if you keep to that very small part of book, Twitter, you can make nice (laughs) friends.
1: Twitter's a lovely place if you don't Mm. go beyond the the small walls of, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, And, and, okay, so once the books come out then, uh, obviously the hope is that it will sell well and will reach a big audience, but how do you judge um, whether a book is successful or not is it purely about the earning up the advance or would you consider a book with poor sales but a strong critical response um, as a success
2: hmm. I think it depends on the genre say in literary fiction mm-hmm. something getting a really strong critical response and it doesn't really make any money I think that's more accepting on the basis that the more books they do the more they will grow, you're building, and their backlist will be evergreen, essentially. Um, personally, I consider a book successful if it um, makes a decent profit overall. Um, you know, it's, more, it's kind of like a, a profit loss ratio. There's not an absolute, this book, every book, if a book doesn't sell 10,000 copies, then it's failed. If I paid £30,000 for a book and it sells 10,000 copies, I'm pissed. If I paid five thousand pounds and it sold ten thousand copies, I am very happy because it's all—it's all about relative, the relative profit yeah. for me. Yeah. Um, but also, I think it, there's often often a lot of pressure—the idea that that every book has to make money immediately, every author has to make money on their first book. Yeah, um, and which which is nonsense, really. If you think an author is a really good writer eventually they will probably become profitable um, unless they're writing in a very very tiny part of the market and also it's kind of your job to do so you know if an author's not really selling in hardback and you're wasting this money on printing very expensive hardbacks then you're just maybe you're publishing them wrong maybe you need to be doing going straight to b format but you also need to be apping your spend online to get the digital sales you know everyone you know maybe their readership don't want it in hardback um, so there's there's a certain amount of responsibility for publishers, obviously. Um, but I mean, so our author Cat Ward, she did two books with another publisher. Uh, she says she was in negative sales. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that's <laughs> true. Um, but We're she's done the book. <laughs> but she's done very well for us with our with her third book. And the first two books are really good. There's no lot, you know, those books should have sold really well. Um, but if nobody wanted her third book then nobody would have had them um you know you sometimes you just have to trust you know with your wizened little publishing heart that eventually a really good author will find their audience and you just have to wait
0: yeah well, well, just, i mean that's an interesting um I, like we don't need to focus on cat on too much but you know the, there's someone that hasn't uh, sold well with the first two books but they were good books what was it that that made you think, right, I, w- I want to try and try and back her and make a success out of this?
2: I mean, I, I don't, in a sense, I it was partly because just the book was so fantastic and I hadn't read anything like it. And that was kind of my, what I wanted Viper to be. I wanted it to be commercial, but I also wanted to have books that were just a little bit different so they could stand out. And that book, you know, it starts with a talking cat. It definitely stands out. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also I thought that because it had such a good pitch and by the end, people would go, oh, and you can, you, if, you, if you then get to the end of the book and you start you read it again and you read it all the way through, knowing what you know at the end, it's just such an enjoyable experience. And I know there's having read it like five, six times um, through the various editorial bits. Um, so I think I thought it was, had a really good potential for marketing and the kind of, and our marketing was essentially you can't we can't say anything about this book you just have to read it and you don't get that many many chances to go with a you just have to read it pitch because people go I did it was a bit shit (laughs) you you have to you have to hold your fire on that so good you've got to read it pitch um but also I knew that Kat had a lot of connections in the in uh, in the author world and lots of authors thought she was great because she was great and I thought that if we started early enough, we did proofs far earlier than necessary. We had authors very kindly reading the word document, not even proofs. You know, they gave up the time, they read a word document on their phones and which meant that we had quotes to put on the proof. So before authors even got the proof, you know, we had Joe Hill, we had Joanne Harris, we had all these people who would, so it kind of made it, the buzz started very, very early. And that was the only way we could really make that book work was to create such a buzz that people would buy a book for the talking cat that, we couldn't tell them anything about. And then Stephen King got on the bandwagon, which, to be honest, I mean that helped.
1: <laughs> I mean, there must be so many stuff like that where you don't, yeah, you don't have any control over it, but it just kind of sendipity happens. It gets in front of the right person, at the right time, and you get a line from them, and you think this is just everything's aligning now for this book, and you can just kind of push.
2: Well, that one I kind of I went into the office in the middle of lockdown and like hand printed out the books, and then our office manager went like round the corner and had them hand two of them hand bound, one for Stephen King and one for Joe Hill, and then we like FedExed them to the states. <laughs> it was um, it was a little stressful. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, thanks to lovely Gillian who uh, arranged that because uh, she, she is the reason we got that quote.
0: And awesome. um, when you when you sign an author, generally. I, i'm assuming that you'll sign them for more than one book or do or do you sometimes just sign it per book what, what's the approach
2: i prefer to sign up for two um at least um because otherwise you're not it's, it's a bit weird to just do one because if you think an author is good and you want to build their career then mm. then you should do at least two also if the first book does really well then bloody penguin can come in and swoop and take book two and all your <laughs> hard work. is put. Um, it, So I, I prefer to.
1: Um, so what books do Viper have coming soon that people should be looking out for?
2: Oh, that you can um, say. Well, obviously, just everything. Um, I'm trying to think of what proofs going out because I've um, I've been on maternity leave. I'm, I'm now back part time, um, but I'm still in that stage where I'm having to claw back. I'm like, no, it's mine now give it back (laughs) um but i think people will be quite excited by uh guy Morpus's second book which is in september this year black lake manor um which is kind of an agatha christie like closed room in a murder mystery house in the middle of nowhere um except uh people can rewind time so your detective will solve the solve the murder and then somebody rewinds time and they have to do it all over again but they get a different solution which is the right one so that's kind of a sort of Agatha Christie Speculative. Um, and then, of course, I hope people will be excited for the third book by Janice, which is in January next year, which is called The Mysterious Case of the Alperton Angels, which is which is features uh two two, two true crime. Journalists uh, both trying um, to go after the same story, which is that of a cult called the Alperton Angels who stole a newborn baby 18 years ago and were trying to sacrifice it as the Antichrist. Both were then foiled and killed and then committed suicide ritually. Um, but now, 18 years later, finally, the Alperton baby is of an age where they can be interviewed. So both these two, tri- yeah. these true crime watches,
1: like up,
2: battling yeah, cool. to try and find the baby and also to to solve the mysterious case of the Alps and Angels. Um, and in true Janice fashion, you know, it's got 400 billion layers and it made my eyes bleed editing it, but it wouldn't be a Janice book if it didn't.
0: We, we just had Janice on the podcast, actually, and she didn't give us that. that we specifically
1: that asked her what was next and she didn't say anything. But
2: so. the, <laughs> the last time I did <laughs> a podcast with Janice, somebody asked her to talk about, I think it was the Twyford Code book too. And she kind of went, oh, what's about that. And I was like no Janice this is the pitch <laughs> <laughs> I just did it for her she was like oh it's so good you're here but no that's well that's okay she, she writes the books and I write the pictures yeah like.
1: yeah and Viper obviously um had great success uh is it last week wait one no was two weeks ago two, one imprint, I a year, <laughs> it feels yeah. like uh, the a long nibbles, time ago the nibbles the nibbies, nibbies. nibbies
2: it's because it's in the shape of a nib I I have it somewhere I don't know where I put it I put it up high because my uh, I found my daughter using it to uh, um, use it for her Lego figures. <laughs> nice. I don't oh, no, there was... <laughs> There it is. Yeah, see, it's a nibby. It's like, so it looks like cool. a nib. That's
1: very cool. Uh, yeah, that must have been quite an exciting moment, especially for a new imprint that you've kind of built from scratch. That must have been quite a gratifying moment.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was, I was, I was quite shocked. I'm glad the cameras didn't zoom in my face because I was like, because <laughs> um I, I you know you always have the people who you think are gonna win um and I thought that we were too young um and just not just not you know the list wasn't big enough or we'd had sort of three big money makers um but I you know I thought I didn't realize we'd made as much of an impact as we as we obviously had uh which is nice and it means that authors who I like um are more likely to read our books which is which is good, and people who um, pro- agents are sending me stuff they probably wouldn't have sent me before. Yeah. I mean, more for them, but still, it's <laughs> it's difficult when you're going up against you know the big four publishers. Yeah, um, so you have to offer something a bit different. Um, I mean, I, I will throw money around, but I hope that maybe it's more sort of the atmosphere, the one to one kind of relationship i can offer which will appeal to people
0: and, and just before we finish the the main questions on that point about money and the offers that you're making authors and stuff like that i mean you know how, how do you feel under pressure when you're trying to think of the right figure and obviously do you sometimes think is that too much is that too little how, how do you pitch it correctly
2: well, you have, a, you have a very big spreadsheet. I mean, it's not so that you don't pull it out of the air. No, yeah. Um, you know, you, you predict based on other similar books and based on what, what books you publish, books that you know, obviously we can look at book scan sales. We can see what other publishers' books have sold, at least through Tills. We can't tell what they've sent out, but we can see what's physically gone through Tills. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get a rough idea of what you're going to sell in hardback and paperback and ebook an export paperback um, and you kind of assess what price point you want. Is this a debut? Do you want to do the hardback at $12.99 to get people in? Is this an established brand that you can go up to $16.99? And then once you plug in all those numbers, a number will be spat out, which says the maximum advance for them to earn out. And then you can see what the maximum advance would be to still hit whatever margin you want. You know, do you want to hit a 20% margin or a 10% margin? So you can see how much money you can afford to spend if it sells what you think it will sell. Um, And I'm never comfortable veering too far from that. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, there have been times where I've kind of gone below what I could offer max because I feel like there's just, there's quite a bit of risk. And obviously you never want to overpay because if you pay more than the book is worth, the, the pressure is essentially on the author, and they may not yeah. realise that, but everybody in the company will know how much you paid for it. They will know what it has to hit, and if it doesn't, um, then there's always that kind of, uh, last book didn't wash its face. For book two, do we double down? Do we spend as much on marketing, or do we just pull back a bit? You know, that's yeah. always going to be a discussion. I mean, books are obviously seen as quite fluffy, but it is, it is a product that we have to sell.
0: Yeah, no, totally. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, th- those were the main questions that we had for you. But but we like to end every podcast by asking our guests the same questions. The the first of which is, um, what was the last book that you read that you can tell us about? <laughs> well,
2: The last book I read was terrible, and I stopped at like quarter of the way through. So
0: I have to tell us now that <laughs> no. <one. laughs> you can tell us that after the recording.
2: Yeah, I just didn't make any sense. I thought half the book was missing. I was like, what? Just gave up. I was was still at a stage where, um, yeah, my my son was waking up quite a lot. I mean, the last book I read was Cat Ward's new book, um, but that was a first draft, so I can't say anything about that. Um, Before then, anybody who's got a very young baby knows the reading becomes a little less possible, and all you want to do when you're not looking after them is watch YouTube videos about cake decorating, (laughs) if you're me. Uh, But the last book I really, really enjoyed... Ooh... And blank. Oh, I read an old Steve Mosby. Um, I read, I think it was Dark Flowers. Oh, cool. I thoroughly yeah. recommend his backlist. I think I read I read that twice now.
1: Um I've, read, I've, read, I've not read any, any of his stuff. I don't think yeah.
2: Well. His backlist before he became Alex North. Um
1: Oh. Oh is that Alex? Oh I know that Alex North. I didn't realise that was okay. So yeah. who did he have to before that? Okay, that's interesting.
2: Um yeah, his books are very dark and very beautiful. And I they're one of the, he's one of the few prime authors I will I will, I reread.
1: Cool. Um, this might be a bit easier then. What was the last film that you watched?
2: Ocean's Eleven on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> it's because I was listening to a podcast about Ocean's Eleven. Okay. And I hadn't seen it for 10 years and it was on Amazon Prime. So I was like, oh, yeah, that is a fun film. I'll watch that again. Why Look, did you watch it on your phone though? Oh, Because I was, I was like putting the baby to bed and then I was cooking dinner and then I was just sitting on the sofa and I couldn't bother to turn the TV on. <laughs> My phone come, has a little stand so it can just stand up on flat yeah, surfaces yeah, yeah, yeah as
0: yeah. as the director intended obviously
2: yes um, that... <laughs> soda he would have he would have been completely <laughs> completely approved
0: um and last tv show that you watched or are watching
2: uh stranger things and modern family
0: yep.
2: <laughs> it's like one episode we... of stranger things and then get to bed on one episode of modern family
0: <laughs> yeah we're doing a binge of modern family with with my kids one of whom is definitely too young to watch modern family but really it's, it's quite sexy yeah. i know it, 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 sometimes i'll see the the description of the episode and i'll me and my wife will sort of try and distract them so i can quickly skip to the next episode to find that one
2: well the one i just watched um Gloria pretended to be a prostitute for like a role-playing valentine's day get together so, watch okay. watch out for the later seasons
0: yeah i'll watch out for that
1: yeah, we're watching Stranger Things just now, and it's fantastic, but it's a bit, it's the scary, a lot scarier, and
2: it's a lot more gruesome, gaudier than it was. Yeah, so gory, surprise! Yeah, yeah. Surpr- I, I, yeah well, I was watching. I was like, this season one wasn't like this. step.
1: F- like- I can see the Modern Family before bedtime with the
2: less. feet yes. and the. I was yeah, just like, yeah, 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 yeah. also What's the so mechanics wrong? of that make no sense. Like, what is he doing? Skin <laughs> slippage does not work like that. And then he's like walking around going. La, 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 I know. I'm honest. I've
1: had so many questions watching that. That, that uh, how is he? How is he going on and off?
0: How is he? How does
2: this help? Because it then was back. What on, did yeah. the
0: hammer do? Yeah, I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah, I've no think. idea what you're talking about. Because I'm. Watching it,
2: we're that. not making any spoilers. This is very much the B thread they put yes. in to make yeah. the adults do something.
0: It's not very good. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, Entirely, and uh, last question: What is? Oh, you just answered us TV for you watching. So this is the last thing we do: the super quick fire, either or. And I always say Ooh. there's no right answer apart from one. But we'll start off with an easy one: sci-fi or crime?
0: Crime. Uh, TV or cinema?
1: TV these days. Uh, night owl or early bird?
2: Natural night owl forced to be early bird by infants. <laughs>
0: A fancy restaurant
2: or takeaway? I don't get to do much of it either. <laughs> fancy restaurant.
1: Nice. And the last one real book or ebook?
2: Real book. Ebook. No, real book. Real oh, book. I thought it said ebook. Damn. No, the <laughs> thing is ebook, Kindle is for work. I read submissions on my Kindle. Oh, I, I see, read okay. real books, which are for pleasure. Okay. And I can't mix them. Because if I pick up my Kindle, I'll start working.
1: So what right. you're saying is they're both a winner in your eyes.
2: They're both a winner, but they're very different. I'll they're very that.
1: different things. That. That's a point each. That's a point each. That's fine. I can but um,
2: Financially, different. ebooks, because they cost £120 to make. And then Amazon will just take a slice. But you don't have to print them or warehouse them.
0: So financially speaking, no, e-book. You're given
1: no, no, some... no. ebook's a winner. That's fine.
0: We'll... <laughs> yeah. Cut it out. Cut, cut, <laughs> this mic. This is one of the rare victories for Tarek in this quiz. I <laughs> <think> that's <laughs> four people now.
2: with have had as a publisher, ebook, please.
0: Excellent. Yeah. Cool. cool. Well, uh, thanks very much, Miranda. That was a lot. of That fun. was
1: a lot of fun. Yeah. That was great. <laughs>
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Thanks very much for tuning in. Uh, as usual, if you enjoyed it, please do take the time to give us a rating and review on your favourite podcast app and make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast. Please also give us a follow on Twitter or your other social, favourite social media accounts at UKpage1 and drop us a message if you want to get in touch. Uh, otherwise, have a great week and join us next episode for another special chat with an industry insider.